We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela. Everybody, Steve Suspidella coming at you once again with Michael Grady and Don Brohan of Economic Personalism. Good morning, guys. Or good morning. <laughs> whenever, good morning. Wherever whatever you time are. it is. <laughs> Whichever time is on our world or universe we're in. Yes, yes. Whenever, wherever you are. Uh, good morning. When we're recording this on the 23rd of March, 2021, if anybody's scoring at home. So uh, in our last show... We spoke of human dignity and uh, that it means respect for people and their rights. Uh, this week, it's seeking the good. So why should we seek the good instead of just doing what we want that seems as good? And what has this got to do with human dignity? Well, just a quick, I'm, I'm going to say it in sort of just layman's terms that I understand that there there's the immediate and then there's the long term um, with regard to how we live our lives. And the good, well, I think most people think of what satisfies their immediate desires. Um, but when we look at the good in terms of the whole full scope of someone's life, and then in a social sense, we look at what is good in terms of the surrounding environment that will allow us to seek what is good in the long term, that starts to broaden our understanding of how we need to um, arrange institutions of society. So in terms of each individual, as Mike will explain in much greater detail, we have, we're given certain potentialities as well as our basic human nature. And to the extent that we are growing and developing as individuals, we experience this pro progress towards happiness. And we're looking at happiness not as just momentary pleasure, but really um, becoming more of what we could say uh, God had created us, uh, us to be, that we'll never reach completely that potential but in seeking and pursuing the good, both in terms of ourselves and our potential, as well as what around us would create an environment where every one of us could have that support for seeking their full development. Yeah, the to, to expand on that, still in layman's terms, since I'm a layman, uh, the, the whole idea so, you know, focuses on what is the meaning and purpose of life. I realize you probably didn't start watching this show to to get that deep into something, but if you stop to think about it, everything in life has to do with the meaning and purpose of life, or what's it doing there. And you know, going by 
people like Aristotle and Aquinas and a lot of other important sages and philosophers who want his names I can't remember at the moment and probably be too long a list to give anyway. The meaning and purpose of life is to become more fully human. This is why respect for human dignity is so important because it is by respecting human dignity that people are or allow allowed isn't the right word because you have a right to do it you participate fully not only in your life as an individual but in the life of society the, the, aristotle called it the bios politicos the life of the citizen in the state because we are not it just individuals and we're not just social we're what aristotle called political animals we're both individual and social so that we cannot look merely to what we are as individuals and do what we want just because it seems good to us at the moment as don said we have to consider every one of our acts as it relates not merely to ourselves and even to other individuals but to other groups and to society as a whole that's what it means to be virtuous in the Aristotelian and Thomist sense. I mean, this doesn't have anything to do, well, actually has everything to do with being a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a pagan or something. It's what you are as a human being. It is why justice is considered the highest temporal virtue because all the other virtues are infused with justice and it is you know, most immediately, it's something called participative justice that says that we're not just individuals, but we have the right and the duty to participate in the whole of society to the best of our ability and means and opportunity and access to the means and all the other complicated things that lawyers and politicians and philosophers talk about. The bottom line is, how do we become more fully human? Do we do it by doing just what we want at the moment? Or do we discern some underlying absolute principles that say, this is right, this is wrong, as best we can? I mean, we are never not perfect. We can never be perfect. But, and you know, within the, the Christian framework and i believe the jewish and islamic you know the abrahamic faiths i'm not too clear about any jew or muslim is free to write in and correct me and in fact i wish you would if i'm wrong but god is infinitely perfect we as human beings are incomplete analogs of god sorry about that it means we're in the image and likeness of god but we're not god uh we are infinitely perfectible, which means we can never reach perfection, but it, it is in our nature to try and work toward perfection, which is the meaning and purpose of life. We are to become ever more fully human, ever more perfect as human beings, knowing that we can never be infinitely perfect as God is. And I, I just like to um, emphasize a point that Mike was making, and in, in using the word perfectible, infinitely, the uh, the corollary of that, or what that 
also says the flip side is that there is a constant and ongoing pursuit. So that notion of justice, justice, thou shalt pursue, it's telling us what our aim is always, and it's a directive from God. But it's also saying, well, you, you got it. You know, you're there, now you can quit. It's this constant repetition and habit. And so when we talk about virtue, both in terms of each of us as individuals and virtue in terms of how we shape our institutions, how we as members of groups and society work together to change institutions, which in a sense are habits. They have ingrained in them laws and beliefs and traditions, but they're also, and this is a very important thing to remember, they're repetitions of how people interact together. So you may have a law, but you may have the people who are within that institution kind of ignoring it or flouting it. So we have to be very aware of, you know, what are our, our daily habits? So virtue, to be virtuous doesn't mean that it's a one-off thing, that you're generous one time and that makes you a virtuous person. You have to have, you have to develop that habit of being generous or being brave. And so similarly with our institutions, we have to make sure that the messages we send through our institutions, um, how we practice, for example, um, participation and distribution or how we contribute and how we're rewarded, that's part of sort of the habits of that institution. So we, we got to keep in mind that this is something we grow and develop in and we come to greater understanding also. So that it, it is a process of growth. And so if you have an institution that does not allow certain individuals or groups to participate, that institution has developed bad habits, okay? And what that starts to do is it influences the individuals within it and even outside of it. They'll start to develop certain attitudes and, and patterns which stop people in either in general or many individuals from being able to fully pursue their ultimate good and their ultimate happiness or the happiness at the end of their life. Yeah, I, I would add as a footnote, according to Aristotle, don't you just love it when somebody starts off with in a, in a TV show by saying, according to Aristotle, uh, all things seek the good. If someone seeks or someone or something seeks that which is not good, it's because that person or thing has the wrong idea of good or is trying to avoid a greater evil. So it is within nature itself, since God created nature and God is all good uh, and can't create anything that is that contradicts himself, otherwise he wouldn't be God. Uh, the, with free will, we can choose that which seems to us good, but which is not objectively good, or we can try to avoid a greater evil by doing what we think is a lesser evil. I mean, th this is the whole problem of life. I mean, if you didn't have problems, you wouldn't grow in advance. But the bottom line is that it is natural for us to seek that which is good 
And Aristotle defined that which is good as that which is in conformity with our nature. Right. And, and maybe, Mike, we should give some specific examples. We're talking kind of in an abstract way. Kind I of abstract. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's, but this is so people, we're, we're trying to convey sort of the general sense of what virtue is and what institutions are. But let's, let's take an example um, in terms of the assumptions within today's, uh, the way we and the academia and politicians look at the economy and look at the way that individual citizens are able to earn a living within the economy. There's an underlying assumption or belief that a few people, you know, the entrepreneurs, the elite, they're the ones who are uh, uh, who who become the owners, and that's as it should be. And the rest of us are going to be the wage earners and the salary earners. We will work for the owners. And even the government, in terms of its policies, reinforces this: that its programs are not, in general, designed to. First of all, let people know this is a good thing for you to be a worker and for you to be an owner. And that really in our society, in our economy, it's healthier if each of us not only owned our own labor, but also owned the new capital or new technologies that are starting to actually replace our labor with automation and artificial intelligence. So then you look at how this assumption starts to become part of our, our habits. Um, both in terms of what we expect, you know, when we're going out to find a, a way of earning a living, our, our expectations are pretty much let's find a job. And then it may become let's find any job because we're desperate in order to survive. So we start thinking in more in terms of just an employee as something which is part of what, what someone else needs or a business needs our labor in order to produce something rather than our thinking and getting into the habit of thinking of ourselves as part owners. So in for, um, for today's purposes, we have companies uh, that are, some of them are employee owned. Um, they're not, that's not socialism. This is private property rights that each of the employees has as an owner, part owner within their company. Um, and so some of those companies have been able to change the thinking and the habits of the workers in the company to start thinking like owners. So in other words, be aware of what's, you know, what are we wasting? Where are the costs we can reduce? Um, how can we bring in new customers? Um, and, and it becomes a different relationship between each of the people in the company, but also the, the people in the company as they relate to customers in the outside world. This carries over also to our, our institutions, including academia, for example, that when you go to a business school, you may have those rare courses which mention employee stock ownership. You might, but it's usually in terms of management science and what is called good business practices you know, it's, you know, make your workers feel like owners, you know, um, that we want to instill responsibility in our owners or in our, in our workers, but there's not that 
idea that yes, we should actively, as we grow as a company, we need to start becoming a company of co-owners. And then what does that mean? It's not an easy process. If you're changing habits, you're changing ways that people think. So this is, you know, something we should keep in mind is um, habits are not only rep repetition, it's also repetition with some goal in mind. Yeah, it, it's, an, it's something like what Fulton Sheen referred to as philosophies at war. The whole idea of society, according to some people, is in direct conflict with what other people think society is. You know, what, or the, what is the whole meaning and purpose of life? And this was the best example I can think of at the moment was the final debate in 1927 before, between George Bernard Shaw and G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton uh, got up and made his little spiel and said that the, what we're talking about here is power. We want to empower people to be able to be productive uh, because as a, as, a, as a sidebar here, uh, according to Say's Law of Markets, as articulated by Jean-Baptiste Say, uh, there's only one way to be able to consume something, and that's to produce it. You either produce it for yourself directly, or you produce something to trade to someone else for what that other person produced so that you can consume it. In this way, as Say's Law is summarized, Production equals consumption and supply generates its own demand and demand its own supply. You don't need to worry about that. But the point was that the meaning and purpose of life includes access to the opportunity and means to be productive, to produce, to be a, 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 a contributing member of society, not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of everyone else. So Chesterton said the best way to do this is to be an owner of capital, to be to own private property. This will make you productive. This will empower you as a member of society. George Bernard Shaw got up and said, ah, you're full of it. The only thing that matters is taking care of people. Income is the only thing that matters. The only thing, the meaning and purpose of life is to make certain that people are taken care of materially. Sounds That's like what's the, going on today. Exactly. What, 600 people in California was on the UIV uh, program for the last years. There was a country in, uh, was it in Norwegian cup, uh, country has been doing it for a year. Yeah, I think dollars yeah, $2,000 a month just to do whatever. So, ah, everything's gone up. Yeah, everything's, yay, we don't have to do anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it seems they, like they, they're, they're, you, become, got, you got to think of a third way. They're doing a third way as well. Well, actually, that's not the third way. That was the way of, of socialism because the first principle of socialism is that all of society should be directed to the well-being of its members with special emphasis on the poor. This was Henri de Saint-Simon in his book, The New Christianity in 1825, that has been taken as the guiding principle of all socialism ever since. Yeah, and I think Mike made a good point about power. And when we consider what might be the three alternatives, we can start with that idea of where power should be vested. Where does it start? Where do rights start? And in socialism, 
really you're looking no longer at individual rights, particularly with regard to the economy and ownership. Um, you're looking at placing control, the decision over who gets what, you're putting that in the government or whoever runs a collective. In capitalism, which is a economic form of individualism, and, and when we say individualism, it's, it's really thinking of people in isolated terms, that their rights are theirs, but without consideration to how they how their use of those rights might affect other people and their rights. So when we took, talk about power, because this is now something which is, you know, you've been, you have certain rights, so go out and use them. And if you do well, you know, you, you did what you were supposed to, and now you're being rewarded for it. And so you find people who, um, by virtue of um, their intelligence or their athletic ability, or quite frequently their circumstances which enable them to see more possibilities than someone who is struggling to survive. So you have all these circumstances by which a few people may end up with much more power and the ability to control than anyone else or the majority of people. And so that's what's happened under the system of capitalism, which is not looking at every person as important and worthy of respect and having essential dignity and also as um, as members of a society who should be enabled by that the, the structures of society to develop their individual potentials. So when we look at what we call the just third way, because we, we are folk are this paradigm that we talk about personalism and economic personalism, at heart it is um, a structuring of justice and how that affects um, each human being as an individual, but also connected to other people in the rest of society. But it always starts with power beginning with each person. So that's when we talk about an alternative, um, it's what you'll often find with what's called the third way, because there are a whole lot of third ways that are now being expressed and are you know, called for by a variety of whether it's democratic socialists or democratic capitalists. And what they do is essentially merge one aspect of socialism, which is um, care for the poor, or care for those who are most excluded with capitalism, which is saying, yes, we should um, have the means of control over the political organizations. So you, what you have is you miss the whole point that we must look at how we get economic power through private property ownership to every individual member of society from the day they're born to the day they die. And how then the question becomes, well, how do you do that without turning back to socialism where you have the state now deciding who's going to get what, who's going to have what opportunity? And so when we talk about the just third way, we are looking at what can be done within this network of institutions, which we call the common good. It's all operating as it's integrated, it's all there. And each of us must have not partial access to that. We each need to have full access. It's up to us to figure out how we wanna participate 
and use that access. So that's not given to us. We have that's our responsibility. But if we're blocked in any way, if we're excluded, or if the laws prevent us from being able to access all of the common good, we cannot develop fully as human beings, and we're, we can't fully pursue happiness. So, what is the common good, and what is virtue? You want to start with that, Mike? <laughs> well, I was going to add on to something you'd said before, but we can let it. That'll be a whole new show. Uh, I was going to bring in William Cobb, but independency, mere creatures of the state, and all that other stuff. But the common good, you know, at its most basic, the good that is common to all human beings that defines us as human is our, and you're ready for this, our analogously complete capacity to acquire and develop virtue. That is to become more fully human. Okay. That doesn't mean anything to you. What is important is that our job as human beings, the meaning and purpose of life is to become more fully human. Now, because we're both individual and social, what Aristotle called political, we do this ordinarily within a social context, what Aristotle called the polis, the, the consciously structured community or organized body within which human beings as political animals become more fully human. Now, the polis is not this thing that's created out of nothing or just appears magically from God or whatever. It is, and it's not just the buildings or the fields or anything else that compose, you know, the physical uh, uh, environment, environment of, of, of the community. It is a vast network of institutions or social habits that define how we carry out the daily business of life. This vast network, this common good, in order to fulfill its purpose, must be accessible by every single person or anyone excluded will not be able very easily or sometimes at all to become more fully human in the way it was intended as a human being. Yeah, and, and I think um, what Mike said is um, it's important in that we have to see how the common good, how we relate to the common good, and it is in that capacity that each of us has to become more human, more of who we really are uh, and to develop as a human being. That's from the human individual standpoint. Externally, we need to have ways, um, in a sense, their supports of this whole development that's taking place. And so we create, as Mike says, social habits. What does that mean? Well, Father Free talks about fleeting institutions, meaning a group of people come together for a short period of time in order to, um, full, to take care of a certain need. For example, if you have a disaster and a, a community has, you know, the, the homes have been demolished, people are hungry, what do you do? And so people come together and decide, okay, we're going to have to gather whatever foodstuffs we have. We need to meet at this area. And so they come up with these patterns in order to get them through that situation. 
you know, and they have to have some kind of order because otherwise people are running off in different, you know, directions or some people are looting or, you know, some people taking advantage. But the group of people decide, we're, let's all come together and let's figure this out so that we can get through this emergency. Once the emergency is done and everyone's life is getting back to normal, they disband. So that was a fleeting institution. Now you have um, also businesses, in a sense, when they are formed and they're operating and they're delivering their goods and services, that's another institution. And that can continue on for generations. Now within that institution, you wanna look at, is it ordered in such a way that every member within for example, that business develops equal opportunity to, to grow as a member of that group. Does that institution, that business, is it serving its customers in a way that is bringing greater value to the customers or is it cheating them? Okay, so it in itself develops certain habits and patterns. Now, what Father Free also talks about is that all these institutions at every level and and you know he was realistic you know each of us we can't be involved in every institution constantly we're human beings we're limited so we're going to be dealing at any one moment at us you know with this institution that institution but the idea is at the moment where we need to be able to access for example we i decide to start a business i'm going to need credit to do that you know, I never had a business before. So now, you know, I've been an employee, I got my paycheck, but now I decide I want to start my own business. So I want to be able to approach the system of money and banking and credit to show that if you loan me, if you make this business loan to me, I have contracts lined up with customers and I'll be able to repay your loan. So please make this loan so I can get my business off the ground. Well, in some cases, that person looks at me and for reasons other than, you know, that I have a good business proposition, they don't like me for some reason. I don't look the way they want me to look. And they say, uh, no, we don't think we could make a loan to you. If in that case, the institution has blocked off legitimate, my legitimate right to access and participate. It's so, in that sense, Father Free says every level of the common good, whether it's immediate down at you know your family level or your community level, your national level, always has to look towards the levels above it and the levels below it. So that you know that you you within that institution that you're, you're interacting with on a daily basis is always keeping in mind the good, the higher good, so it never becomes an impediment in itself to, you know, everyone in society being able to access this whole network, that people should have the equal opportunity to participate as long as they have, you know, the, the means, the ability, I should say, to exercise that participation responsibly. Um, so, in, in, so it is that notion of this interconnectedness of institutions of all sorts, always keeping in mind the de full development of every one of us. So that that is a very important distinction between individualism and collectivism. Collectivism doesn't really care about 
as much about each of us as individuals. It's sort of looking at this whole abstract, is it society, is, you know, are the people, you know, are, are things moving in a good direction? And then you have individualism, which is, you know, we all, we, we have these rights. It's out, up to you to go out and do what you can. You know, and, and if other people get trampled in the meantime or if they're excluded, you know, that's their problem. Her, when she was talking, it made me think of uh, price gouging, the libertarian idea of uh, Scrooge's rights and all this versus uh, seeing from Gabriel Garcia Moreno's life when there was a gigantic earthquake in Ecuador. And he personally went down there to see oversee the project. And he finds out that there was this guy price gouging water i think it was and he brought him in the middle of the city and it publicly had him flogged and shockingly enough nobody did that afterwards <laughs> that's a way to start a good habit i guess <laughs> i'm not being selfish or greedy I, I, I read about that but one of the most important things that father Faree emphasizes about the you know the care for the common good is that it is our individual personal responsibility to look after it. We can't just leave it to the state or to the great people. Now, this was one of the things that absolutely fascinated Alexis de Tocqueville about um, the United States, at least in the 1830s. And also, believe it or not, Pope Pius IX. That was, according to de Tocqueville, a Frenchman would see a situation and say, the government should do something. The Englishmen would look at a situation and say, you know, these great nobles, some of these great people should do something. In the United States, no matter what the situation was, whether it was, you know, a sudden conflict with the natives, you know, the Native Americans, or a traffic jam, or even a children's game, Americans tended to all of us get organized and address the situation immediately. And there is language, for example, in Democracy in America, to Tocqueville's great work, that sounds almost exactly the same as some of the passages used by Pius XI a hundred years later in his letters, allocutions, and even encyclicals. When he start where de Tocqueville talks about a new political order for a new day, Pius XI talked about a new pastoral theology for a new day. They were talking about, in different realms, the same thing. The human person sees something wrong, learns the basic principles of right and wrong, gets organized, and restructures the institutions surrounding him or her, to make it possible to live life the way you're supposed to live it, to become more fully human. That's why Father Faree, in his little pamphlet, Introduction to Social Justice, which is available as a free download on the CESJ website, free plug, uh, emphasized the fact that the common good is our personal responsibility, not just somebody else. I mean, Father Faree praised the efforts of these activists up to a point. He says, they, you know, going out, demonstrating for something does call attention to a problem and the fact that something must be done. But then he said, many such activists 
build in themselves a great sense of virtue for having done this, then they go home, leaving the problem there. That they may have started a process, maybe, but the idea is you don't just leave it to somebody else to do it. It's your primary responsibility to do something, which is get organized and fix the problem. And right. today and, you get organized and destroy a city. Well, that too, you can. Yeah, I, I think also there's a tendency for people to think there's a problem. The government needs to take care of this. And the problem is that you're now transferring your personal responsibility to organize with other people to correct the situation and you're turning it over to an apparatus that may or may not even understand the problem. It may not be directly affected by it. So you want to have people not feel overwhelmed by this, oh my God, I'm responsible for the common good. How, <laughs> that's so huge. How can I possibly have any impact on something so gigantic like you know the Federal Reserve System or our tax system or something over on the other side of the world? Because we do, when we think of the common good ultimately, we're not just talking about people in the United States or people in another country. We're, we have to be thinking about every human being that happens to be on planet Earth who is alive and who will be born. So because that's so vast, you know, Father Free, being a realist, I mean, he's eminently practical. He was talking about how you can make your level of the common good that you interact with on a daily basis or you have some uh, interaction with, you're going to be dealing with other people in the similar situation. So how do you, as a member of a group, come together to say, okay, let's identify where the problem is, exactly what needs to be fixed. Then you use sound principles of uh, justice to make sure that people can participate, people can get rewarded, you know, and adjust based on their participation or contribution. And so that people come together and they identify the problem, the solution, and then they have to start interacting in this new way. And that is, they are now developing daily habits, social habits, not just, you know, I get up and I brush my teeth in the morning, but now when we come together as a group, we're going to do things a little bit differently so we can eliminate this bad pattern, this this vice, this social vice that has uh, been able to develop within our institution. So it's not expecting you to do the impossible. It is expecting you, even if you're a child, and this was an interesting thing that he said, social justice can even be done by children. They have a game or they have a, a, a sports team and they see that maybe some people are being excluded. They're constantly sitting out on the sidelines. And then because of that, these people, they, they never get to play the game. So how do we now reorganize so that, yes, we want to win, but we also want to make sure that everyone, you know, maybe they need a little bit more practice or training, but we want to change our habits as a group so that these people now can take part, uh, be able to participate more fully on the team. 
which was what the Tocqueville was talking about. <laughs> was that, that yes. <laughs> even children in their games get organized to pursue a goal. Uh, and as and as Don reemphasized, you know, de Tocqueville discerned three types of liberal democracy. And we and we note this in the book, Economic Personalism, another free plug, uh, that the the French notion did de Tocqueville call it the French notion or European notion of liberal democracy is that the collective itself, the state is sovereign and distributes rights and benefits and takes care of people. But the, the real sovereignty is in the government, the state, the people with a capital P. The English notion was that, and this is all according to de Tocqueville. So don't blame me for it entirely. Uh, the English notion is that an elite is in charge, not necessarily the aristocracy or, or, or the monarchy or whatever. It's the most able people. They are charged with the care of the rest of us. You know, we poor dumb things who can't take care of ourselves. We need these great people to do it. And this found its epitome in the 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 political and economic philosophy of a guy named Walter Bagehot. According to him, it was the moneyed class who really ruled the British Empire in the 19th century. The, the monarchy and the aristocracy stopped really ruling uh, England with the Tudors. The Tudors were just puppets of the rich people. And you could probably make a very strong case for that. Uh, and <laughs> uh, and of course the French version of liberal democracy was epitomized by the French Revolution the American type of liberal democracy which in my opinion doesn't seem to exist anymore uh, except maybe in vestiges in people's minds and in the more thoughtful politicians who are, keep trying to restore what America really is, not make America great again, make America what it truly is and was meant to be, is that the individual human being is sovereign. Now, of course, in the United States, the problem was that, especially in the 1830s, not every single human being truly was sovereign. You had slavery, you had treatment of the native peoples, uh, the rights of women were not, you know, recognized in many respects. But the fact is that the underlying assumption was that every single human being is sovereign. And this is embodied in the Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution, especially the preamble. The fact that we didn't measure up to our ideals is not the point. The point is we have them. And that was the type of liberal democracy that de Tocqueville and Pius IX found so admirable in the United States. In fact, when Pius IX formulated the first constitution, the fundamental statute for the papal states, he modeled it on the US constitution and in, in his opinion, improved it. Even though Gladstone, you know, the British prime minister thought that he had used the unwritten British constitution, but of course, Gladstone was British prime minister, he was going to say that. Uh, the bottom line is that according to de Tocqueville and Pius IX and a number of the popes since, the United States with its recognition of, for all its 
applause. The fact that it recognized the sovereignty of the human person made it head and shoulders above any other system that existed at the time. So what do you guys got on tap for next time? <laughs> A much longer talk. <laughs> yes. Well, we're going to be talking about what uh, Mike has raised a couple times um, in terms of Aristotle's notion of human beings being political animals. I'm not crazy about the word animal, but I think the word political is uh, a very timely discussion uh, for the current times, given the state of politics, but that's not what we're talking about. And so this will relate to uh, what we've been discussing as uh, each of us as human beings, as individuals, unique individuals, but also as unique individuals who are members of a group who are sovereign in and of ourselves, but we're dealing with other sovereign human beings. How do we do that? Where's the, uh, where can people get your books? Mike, would you well, like to? On the, on the CESJ website, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you can't afford it and really need a copy, there's a free download available on the CESJ website. Right. CESJ.org? Yes. yes. And so just to give the, the specific link um, is uh, CESJ, Center for Economic and Social Justice, dot org slash economic hyphen personalism hyphen book. It'll be under the show notes if you didn't write that down. Oh, good. <laughs> Why'd you put me through that? <laughs> uh, Michael, Don, appreciate it as always, and uh, see you next time. Okay, thank you so much, Steve. Oh, thank you.